And we are uh, presently going through Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches, and we're almost done with the letter. And uh, we're at the part here where Paul is giving instructions for how Christian households are supposed to work, how they're supposed to relate to each other. And here he addresses slaves and masters. And while hopefully we never come across slavery today, we all live in a web of relationships with different power relations. And so this passage still applies to us today. So please listen along as we hear from Ephesians chapter 6. A reading from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours as in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. Uh, that you give us your word, and we're grateful that you have sent your spirit, uh, that we might hear and believe it, uh, what your word says about your son Jesus, and how he uh, came here and died for us, and now reigns with you. Uh, Please help us to believe that, to receive that, and uh, to apply that to our lives, and particularly how we uh, treat uh, others, uh, those we have power over, and those who have power over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did uh, teen ministry in some form for 10 years or so, and uh, watching, their, watching teens and their parents relate, I was fortunate enough to witness something very important. For most parents of teens, <clears throat> there is a moment, a terrifying realization at some point, that they literally have no control over their child. There are no more incentives, no more consequences that can coerce their teen to do what the parents want them to do. Short of tying them up, the teen will do whatever the teen wants to do. And like I said, for most parents, that is a terrifying moment because they realize that they have very little power and that from now on, the only reason why their teen would listen to them is because they love and respect their parents. Generally, parents want to coerce and incentivize their kids. Kids learn to manipulate their parents to get what they want. But eventually, incentives and consequences dry up. After all the years of timeouts and groundings, losing video games or phones, not being able to drive, whatever, all that's left is whether there is mutual love and respect. And that's what Paul is trying to do here for the master-slave relationship. Take out the manipulation, the coercion, the violence, and replace it with mutual love and respect. Now, if you weren't here last week, and you didn't listen to last week's sermon, you might be wanting to stand up and flag me down and say, Bob, slavery's wrong. Shouldn't we be starting there? Well, that's what we did last week. We took a broad view of slavery in the ancient world and in the Bible and saw how Paul navigated a very personal situation between a runaway slave, Onesimus, and his master, Philemon. And in that letter to Philemon, we saw that the Bible subverts slavery in its ancient and modern forms, and that Jesus can bring slave and master together as brothers. 
the church can do a much better job at full restorative justice than the state can. The Bible got slavery right, but sadly, for the most part, the church got slavery wrong. So because we dealt with some of the broader issues last week, we're going to get more granular here in this short passage. If you haven't heard it, though, please go back and listen to last week's sermon online uh, if you get a chance to, because it'll answer some of the questions you might have, which won't be addressed here this morning. Today, we'll again see how Paul subverts slavery, but we will look at it through the lens given to us here in this passage. And thankfully, this applies to all of us, not just slaves and masters, because all of us struggle with manipulating and coercing others, or being manipulated and coerced by others. We struggle to treat human beings like human beings, and we really don't like it when we aren't treated like human beings. So where's the good news? The good news is that Jesus is a new master who changes the way we relate to each other. We can give up coercing, we can give up manipulating, and there's someone to turn to when we're being coerced and manipulated. So that's how we're going to look at this passage. And we'll start with this. Everyone has a new master. Jesus is our new master. Now, we're going to have to get a little technical here in this first point. Because there's a popular academic opinion that Christianity started as this really radical, progressive, egalitarian movement. And then as the first century wore on, the later New Testament documents became more conservative, more patriarchal, reinforcing ruling class hierarchy. And this passage here, written later by Paul, is one of the places people go to to support that thesis. Because at first glance, this looks like a typical address to slaves, dressed up in Christian language. Slaves, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, rendering service with a good will, all because of Jesus. This is exactly what any Roman elite would want slaves to hear. As far as the ruling class was concerned, slaves were not trustworthy, not hard workers, and not loyal. So if appealing to Jesus could make them more productive, loyal workers, all the better. To gain acceptance, any new religion would have to reinforce the slave system. So you could read this and conclude that Paul had sided with the masters. Until you go on to the next verse, verse 9, where Paul writes, Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, this is an incredibly subversive verse. Commentators don't even know what it means when Paul says, Masters, do the same to them, your slaves. Masters can't obey their slaves, so what does Paul mean? And my best guess is he's referring to verse 8 where it says, knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Paul is saying, masters, do good to your slaves for the sake of Christ, not based on their performance or obedience. If slaves are supposed to obey their masters, regardless of their treatment, masters are to do good to their slaves, regardless of how well they respond to their commands. Now, this becomes clear in the next clause where Paul writes, and stop your threatening." The Greek term there for stop is appropriate because it's also used to mean loosen or unfasten chains or bonds. Let go of, untie. It's an appropriate term for the slave economy. And the word there for threatening is only used in two other places, both in the book of Acts. 
where the authorities threaten the apostles if they keep preaching, and where Saul, who becomes Paul, is breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. Clearly, this kind of threatening is about violence. Paul is saying to masters, threats, particularly threats of violence, can no longer be the basis of your relationship with your slaves. But slavery depends on violence and the threat of violence. What happens to slavery when masters cannot threaten violence? It basically becomes voluntary. Masters should do good to slaves and give up threatening them, Paul writes, because they know that the one who is both their master and their slave's master is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Jesus levels the playing field. Slavery in the church is subverted because now both master and slave have the same new master owner, Jesus. This is the basic gist of the passage, and it might sound surprising, because the Bible makes much of freedom. And it says that what the gospel provides for us is freedom. But it's a freedom from harsh masters. And a freedom into a new servanthood under Jesus. Christianity does not promise autonomy. Nor does any other serious worldview. Everyone has a master. And at best, you can choose which master. Well, this is how Jesus talks. You can make God your master or money or pleasure, or status, or religiosity, or whatever. You can only have one master, and you get to choose if you want it to be Jesus. But no master gives us life like Jesus does. I'm sure most of you have heard of this scandal about the parents bribing their kids way into college. came up recently. Well, one of the people at the center of this is the former Yale women's soccer coach, Rudy Meredith. This was a guy who had built an elite program at Yale for over 20 years. But he he did it as a good and fun coach. He made them practice in Halloween costumes on Halloween. He would bring his players bagels and make them watch silly 80s movies on long, long bus rides. His players loved him, and he treated them with real dignity and respect. And he had done so much for the community and had recently been inducted into the Connecticut Soccer Hall of Fame. But several years ago, people noticed his attitude seemed to change. Less focused, less present, less joy. And some of the kids on the team didn't seem to be quite qualified to be there. Last year, he was caught taking a bribe from parents to get their kid into Yale. And he became the key connection in the whole case. Coach Meredith had changed masters. Apparently, money became his master, and it had already begun sucking the life out of him before he was even caught taking bribes. Well, this is what I mean by master. Our master is where we find our purpose, our hope, our value, our identity. Our master is the person or thing who is going to save us. Who is your master? Scripture says Jesus is our rightful master. In this uh, First Corinthian passage, I put it in the front of your bulletin, Paul tells the church there that everyone in the church has been bought with a price. That's slave language. Jesus purchased us with the price of his life on the cross. Jesus becomes our master by dying for us and then rising from the dead, giving us his eternal life through his spirit and peace with the Father. He unites us to God. 
You all have a new, a new master, Paul is saying. You all belong to Jesus more than anyone else. And you would want Jesus to be your master because he became a slave and gave himself up for you. He sacrifices his life and freedom to give you life. It's a one-way street of blessing that affirms your humanity and affirms you as an image bearer of God. Because you have a master who honors and builds up your humanity, you can honor and build up everyone else's humanity. We can give up manipulation and coercion. See, in this passage and elsewhere, there's a a legitimate question as to why Paul is so adamant that slaves behave well, regardless of whether their masters are watching. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul is commanding wholehearted obedience. And this seems a little much, a little over the top for a slave-master relationship. But what Paul is talking about is living honestly, not manipulating. Particularly when when he writes, not by the way of eye service, which is a Greek word Paul seems to just make up. When he says, not as people pleasers. Because for slaves, the incentive was to get on the master's good side, to be seen doing the right things. That would get them extra food, extra privileges, over the long term, a shot at freedom. Slaves were freed far more regularly in Roman slavery than in our modern Atlantic version of slavery. The point was, masters controlled all the levers and strings for their slaves, including freedom. So slaves did whatever they had to do to get their masters to like them. They had an incentive to manipulate, to kiss up, to be dishonest in their service. Sorry, fighting something here. And while the case of slavery is an extreme example, it's the same for all of us. We all have people in our lives who we see as having more power. We want these people to like us. We want these people to respect us so that they will favor us, sponsor us, welcome us in, lead, lend us their resources. Who is that in your life? Who are you trying to people please? A common example, of course, would be the work setting, a boss or manager. You want to go above and beyond for them, getting things done ahead of schedule, have insightful comments and useful ideas, or simply affirming every initiative of theirs. In a social setting, there's a person in the middle of the crowd who seems to have the most power, whose opinion matters more than others. In their presence, you want to have the funny story, you want to look the right way, you want to throw the coolest dinner party. In a church or ministry setting, when leaders are around, you want to have the eloquent prayers, the biblical insights, the wonderful reports of change and transformation. Who might you be manipulating and people-pleasing? For me, it was always teachers. My greatest gift and ability is getting teachers to like me. I was made for the modern classroom. And the amount of privileges and favor I received from teachers from middle school through seminary, is laughable and disgusted many of my classmates. Things like having my own private parking spot in high school, which was better than all the teacher spots. In many ways, I was like Hermione Granger, who early on in the Harry Potter series was the know-it-all teacher's pet kiss-up, always sitting up front, always ready with an answer. Like Hermione, I learned to restrain my vast knowledge and answering skills. I would wait five seconds 
And if no one had an answer, if no one raised their hands, I would then raise my hand like, sorry, I, I, I know again. <clears throat> instead of answering questions, I started asking, instead of answering questions, I started asking insightful questions myself to show that I'm really listening and thinking hard about this. Even into seminary, I played that role. I'm a member of a 70 pastors a private Facebook group, a bunch of PCA pastors. One day last year, one of the guys I'd never met, he's in New England, direct messaged me. He asked me, hey, are, were you in that apologetics class in 2006 in Covenant Seminary? And I said, yeah. He remembered me out of a class of 50, and he even had some of my comments jotted down in his notes on the margins. Right? I was that guy who spoke enough to be remembered 12 years later out of a class of 50. I certainly wasn't the guy who took notes or would ever read them again. Right? When you're taking notes, you can't make eye contact with the teacher and ask good questions. Winning favor from your academic superiors and institutions is a great strategy for success in our culture. But what Jesus does as a new master for slaves, he does for all of us as our master. We have no one to please but him. As Paul explained earlier in this letter, he has been raised above all authority and power, and all things are summed up in him. He is the goal and end of history. And if he is your master then you have already been raised with him. So whatever it is that you want from these powerful people and institutions, you don't need to manipulate and deceive. You don't need to people please for it. Like Paul says to slaves at Corinth in this passage already quoted, if they can get their freedom, great, do so. But if not, that shouldn't undo you. If Jesus is your new master, then your status, value, future, joy, progress, improvement... They're all assured in his victory and rule. That's why Paul says slaves are freedmen of the Lord. And he adds that those who are free when called have become slaves of Christ. Which is why masters have to give up threatening and do good to their slaves. Because both slave and master have the same new master in Jesus. Earthly masters cannot simply treat their slaves as living tools. That's how Aristotle described slaves, as living tools. What a smart ancient person would do with a living tool, modern people would do with machines. Give the machine as much energy and maintenance necessary to generate the most productivity. Paul is saying masters can no longer treat slaves as simply machines that produce an output. Instead, they do good to them regardless, treating them as human beings, brothers in Christ. So this applies to anyone with any power or authority over anyone else. In the workplace, people under your supervision are not tools for you to get to use to get productivity out of. You do not need to bully or threaten. Instead, you help them steward and develop their gifts. Sometimes that might mean leaving the organization. But they are not tools to enhance your career or make you look good. As parents, you can give up bullying and threatening your kids. Sometimes a raised voice or a harsh tone is necessary to grab your kid's attention. Other times, it's a result of frustration and simply an intimidation tactic to get them to do what you want or to leave you alone. And for me, threatening my girls with various consequences is incredibly effective. But it always seems to come at a relational cost. I stop relating to my kids as a loving and concerned father. And instead, I'm simply making a power play coercing them to cooperate out of fear rather than love and respect. 
it never feels good or right. And in our particular Silicon Valley culture, there's a real divide between professions. There's people in tech and surrounding industries making lots of money. And then there's people in retail or services or, or manual labor gigs like gardening. And very generally speaking, these groups of people live in different places and have different education levels and often different ethnic backgrounds. And the people with money can dangle it over the heads of those who don't have money, saying, you better do things my way. You better please me, or I'm going to take my business elsewhere. The relationship is based on threat. So there's an opening for deceptive manipulation as well. That's not how Jesus treats us or wants us to relate to him. If your master is Jesus, then you don't have to live that way. You don't have to protect yourself and your bottom line at all costs. You don't have to serve your agenda at the expense of other people. You don't have to defend your future prospects by using others. Obviously, you're not loving people when you don't hold them accountable. But holding someone accountable is different from using your position of power to threaten and coerce to get your way. Jesus teaches that a great diagnostic to see how well you've internalized the gospel is to see how you treat people under your authority or in your debt. Run that diagnostic in your life. Remember that Jesus makes clear throughout the Gospels, particularly in his parables, how you use power and how you treat people under your authority or in your debt, that's how God will treat you. Well, that's not a threat. That's just natural consequences. Jesus used his power and authority to serve others, to raise others up, to raise you up. He gave up his glory and his privilege for that. So whatever power and authority you have... You are to use that to steward God's creation, particularly his image bearers, other human beings. When we manipulate and threaten, we treat people as means to an end, as rungs on a ladder. Of course, that's one of the things that's always been wrong with the world. That's nothing new. But if Jesus is your master, you can treat people with dignity and respect. You can serve those under you and over you. Because your old master... Money, acclaim, success, revenge, status, whatever your master was, has been replaced by Jesus, who doesn't relate to you by threats or manipulation. He doesn't use you and take your life. He gives you life and affirms your humanity and keeps his promises. Now you can do the same for others. Finally, though, what if you're under someone who is abusing their power and authority over you? But we can still live this way, because Jesus is a master who sees. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Why should slaves always obey their masters from their hearts? Because even if no one else does, Jesus sees. And no good deed goes unrewarded. Look at the end of verse 9 knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There's no partiality with Jesus. So even if earthly masters seem to make out like bandits now and get away with everything, with Jesus, whether you're a master or slave, it won't matter. What matters is what you did with what you were given. Paul says it similarly in Colossians 3, quote in the front of your bulletin, 
where he says, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The good slaves do will not be overlooked, and the bad the masters do will not go unpunished. When you do good, even if, even if no one sees or cares, Jesus sees and takes note. When bad or harm is done to you, even if no one sees or cares, Jesus sees and takes note. Now, this would be vitally important for slaves or anyone else in a situation where they are not necessarily free to leave. For us, this doesn't directly apply to a bad workplace or job or boss. If you have a terrible boss or hate your work, you're free to leave. Do so. This passage does not compel you to stay in a bad job situation or to simply follow orders right, or to not be a whistleblower. But for those who are not free to leave their situation for whatever reason, this is an important consolation. It's still worthwhile to treat someone decently who doesn't treat you decently. You don't have to take justice into your own hands, even if others aren't doing justice. Jesus sees, and he will do justice. Now, to, to critics of Christianity, this sounds like keeping the poor and powerless in their place. Keep doing good no matter what, and don't take justice into your own hands. God in the sky will sort it all out in the end. But Jesus and the whole Bible brings good news for the poor and oppressed. Starting all the way back in Genesis. In the first story that we ever have about a slave and a master. Maybe you remember it. Abraham and Sarah were this old and fertile couple called by God to become parents of this new nation. A nation that would bring blessing to all nations and from whom the Savior would come. But they were waiting to get pregnant. And they got impatient. So Sarah told Abraham to impregnate her slave, Hagar, an Egyptian. And Abraham did so. It doesn't appear that Hagar's consent was a concern of theirs. And once she conceived, Sarah was jealous of Hagar. And she abused her. And Hagar ran away. But out in the wilderness, God appeared to her. And told her to return home and that he would bless and protect her son, Ishmael. And there, Hagar gave God the name, the God who sees me. Now fast forward 14 or so years. Sarah finally does get pregnant and has Isaac, the promised child. So now Sarah is determined that Ishmael will not share at all in Isaac's inheritance. She has Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael off into the wilderness desert with just a little bit of food and water. It was a death sentence. They don't make it far, and Hagar puts Ishmael under a tree so that he can die in the shade from dehydration. At that moment, an angel calls out again, saying to Hagar, God has heard your son's cries. And the angel reveals a well to Hagar. And Ishmael lives, and nations come from him. Hagar was a powerless, frightened, abused Egyptian slave woman oppressed by the chosen family. She was Egyptian from the nation that would enslave and abuse all of Israel. A later editor could have wiped that out. God intervened at least twice for her and sees to it that she is the first person recorded in Scripture to give God a name. She's the first one. 
Usually it's heroes of the faith that give God a name. But Hagar's the first one. And the name that she gave him was the God who sees me. And years later she is told, God hears her son's cries. When I was a little boy, we were on a long road trip. And at some point on the interstate, we hit some massive traffic. And there had apparently been a, a really bad accident. So as we kind of slowly creeped up and approached the accident scene, my dad could see what was coming. And in a pretty firm and urgent voice, he commanded me and my brother to not look. Look away. And he held his hand up as well. Right? It must have been a pretty gruesome scene. And I don't know because I looked away. I trust people who tell me to look away. Right? When someone says, oh, this smells terrible, smell it. I say, no, 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 I trust you. I don't have to smell it. <laughs> but we often want to look away, don't we? Because looking might mean having to do something. God sees. Jesus sees. Do we? Do we see when others are abused and oppressed? Do we do anything about it? The true story we are told in the Bible is that God didn't turn away. God didn't look away. God didn't plug his ears. He entered our mess. And on this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing the terror and violence and, and oppression that awaited him and allowed himself to be tortured and killed by it. He took the injustice we do and the injustice we permit upon himself. With Jesus, there's no, imparti there's no partiality. He is the master who sees. With him, every good deed is rewarded and every bad deed is answered for. And the really good news is that if Jesus is your master, he answers for your bad deeds. He answers for your injustice and oppression. And he's alive in you. So now you are free. You are free to treat people as human beings. You are free to return evil with goodness. Malice with kindness. You are free to see and hear and get involved. Let's pray God does that with us. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you speak into and work into uh, even terrible situations like slavery. And we're grateful that you have no partiality. Uh, that you, do, you are not impressed by our greatness or lowliness. Uh, that you see all and that you hear all, and that you respond to the cries of your people, and you respond to the cries of the, of the poor and oppressed. We're grateful for that. And when we cry to you, help us to trust that you hear us. Help us to know that you are working and moving in our lives, and open our ears and eyes that we might be aware of and sensitive to the people who need our help, the people that we can do something for. Uh, in, in relationships of power, whether it's people in power over us or people we have power over, Help us to remember that Jesus is our master and that that can change these relationships. Do that among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.